So a couple things related to grades. The first one is at this point, you can log into the website, see all of your grades. Um, the homework that's up there is, uh, is accurate as of yesterday, which means you have a score and a grade, and that's the worst you can do in the class. Okay? There's a couple ways you can improve that grade. There's three ways you can improve the grade that's on the website, but there's no way to make it any worse than it is. Okay, so the first way to improve it is by doing well on the final. Right, if you do better on the final than you've done on any of the midterms, I will replace your midterm, your, any scores on midterms that are lower than your final score, I will swap out your midterm for your final. Okay? Whether that be a single midterm or all of them. If you do better on the final than you did on any of the midterms, the final score will replace each of those midterms. Okay, so what that means is no matter what your grade is right now, if you ace the final, you can ace the class. Um, if you don't want to count on that happening, and it's probably not a wise strategy to just assume that you will ace the final, two other ways to improve your grade. One is you have until um, Tuesday, December 16th, that's the day of the final, at 9 a.m. to complete any homework that you haven't yet completed. Now, you don't get full credit for turning in late homework. Um, it gets reduced, and the the at this point, you can get up to 50% of the original credit for submitting any homework that you didn't submit initially. So if you missed an assignment or something like that, you might want to go back. You can still do that. That will add points to your homework score, and that will add thereby points to your overall grade. Christopher? Is this like work problems or whatever? Yeah, homework 11 uh, is fixed. Yeah, if you try to submit homework 11 late, it probably told you you were going to get negative percent. And the reason is I have it set so that every hour it takes off like 10% or something like that. And it's supposed to stop doing that once it gets to 50%. And I had somehow forgotten to set that, that floor, so I just kept going negative, and um, that's fixed. Um, <laughs> if you encounter any sort of weird behavior in any of the scores that you see, let me know. Um, one of the things that was pointed out in the discussion forum is that uh, it would be really useful if you could see your individual grades um, on the class webpage, which is, in, which is exactly what the webpage is supposed to be doing. It wasn't doing that. It was only showing your, your, your sort of aggregate grades. So I fixed that. So if you want to go back and see how you scored in each midterm and just verify that what's there is accurate, I'd encourage you to do that. If there is a difference from what's written on the webpage and what's on your exam that I handed back, it's not a problem if you tell me that now. If you wait until after I submit grades, it's a real problem. Okay? So I, I double check, I triple check to make sure that everything's accurate. But I put up the web page so that you can also check that yourself since it's in your best interest to make sure that's accurate. Okay, so that's two ways you can improve your grade. Uh, the third one is with extra credit. Right? So uh, I put up an extra credit opportunity. There's, there's one extra credit opportunity that's been available all along, and a few people have taken advantage of it. Um, if you find mistakes in any of the lecture slides, you can go onto the web page and, and submit the mistake. And for every mistake you find, I'll give you a half a percent extra credit on your overall grade. Um, so there's been a few people who have caught some errors. They have to be significant. If I misspell a word, that's not, I'm not going to give you extra points for that. You're welcome to submit it, because I do want to make the slides better, but it's generally physics mistakes or math mistakes that I'll give credit for. So you can do that. Um, the other thing that I'll give extra credit for is when I hand out the solutions, or when I, when I print the solutions online, you know, I 
tell you what the right answer is for the multiple choice questions, but I don't go into any detail on that. So I started a discussion thread. You can see it here, multiple choice solutions. You can go in there and you can write up a solution, an explanation as to why this is the right answer. And I will give a half a percent credit to the author of each solution. Right, so we've had four midterms. There's about 10 multiple choice questions per midterm. That's about 40 opportunities for extra credit right there. Now, I'm not going to give them all to one person. So I set a cap of 3% per student. So what that is, is that's enough extra credit to get you bumped up half a grade. So if you're a borderline, you know, you're worried that you have a B minus right now, but you almost have a B, um, go ahead and do the extra credit. Make sure you get enough to get up over that threshold. And then you'll know going into the final that you have that, that minimum grade that you want. Any questions? You do not have to take the final. If you're happy with the grade you have right now, you do not have to take the final. Sam? No, I only, I only award one extra credit per question. So for example, I posted an example solution, what I expect. So I took the first midterm, very first question, and I posted the solution to that. Um, so I won't award any extra credit for that problem because I already answered it. But that leaves you like 39 other problems you can submit solutions for. So um, that's also a valuable resource if you're studying and you're looking at the, the solution guide and you can't understand why you know, choice B was the right answer. Um, you can look there and someone hopefully will have explained it for you. Okay, if they haven't, then maybe you can do some digging, figure it out. You can contact me or you can come to my office hours. I'll still have office hours uh, between now and the, the exam. Figure out what the solution is, post it, and get some extra credit for it. I did. It's on there. You can see there's already a few messages in this thread. So go in there and see what the example looks like. Sort of follow that, that guideline. Okay, so you got your midterms back. A couple people who came in late. So... Anyone else not have their midterm? Okay, so if you're paying attention, I'll go over a few of the uh, a few of the multiple choice. If you run to the computer after class, you can type up some of these responses and get extra credit for them. Okay, uh, I'm not going to go over all of them. I'll try to focus on the ones that people had a lot of problems with. Um, number two asks about how fast a clock will run if it were on the moon. And it's a pendulum clock. So what we know about pendula is that their period, or the frequency at which they run, the angular frequency is square root of g over l. So on the moon, the acceleration due to gravity is less, it's six times less, so the rate at which they're going to run is the square root of six times slower. That wasn't one of the options, so none of the above. 
Um, assuming that your ears pop when the pressure increases by a certain amount in a pool, the trick is you have to figure out how far down the pressure is increased by this amount. Use Pascal's law to do that. I'm not going to work through that, but if you write down Pascal's law on your test, you can reference that in your textbook and figure out how you would do that. Uh, problem four was a little tricky. It's not tricky, just uh, a little bit involved because there were two parts to it. We're asked about water coming out of a faucet. We have a given flow rate. And after it's fallen 20 centimeters, we want to know the radius of the stream of water. So we have flow of water. So we should think Bernoulli's equation. You can pick two points. So the, the uh, top of the flow at the output of the faucet and 20 centimeters below would be two logical points to pick. Um, Bernoulli's equation lets us relate the energy per unit volume at point one to the energy per unit volume at point two. At both of these points, the fluid is outside of the pipe, so it's open to the air, which means the pressure at both points is the same. It's atmospheric. So those terms cancel. There's a difference in height between the two points, and therefore there has to be a difference in velocity. So you're given the velocity at one point, you can find the velocity at the other. If you know V2, the velocity of the water down here, 20 centimeters below the output of the pipe, you can say the flow rate is area times velocity has to be the same as the flow out of the pipe which you're given so you know what that equals to 10 to the minus 4 meters cubed per second so you can solve for the area of that flow of water and once you know the area you can find the radius Question five involved a standing wave on a string at the free end at x equals 100 and the fixed end at x equals 0. So what that tells us is that there is a node here and an anti-node here. And you're asked to find um, where there can be an anti-node. So the fundamental mode for a standing wave on this string is going to look like this, with an anti-node at the right, a node at the left. Those come from our boundary conditions. There are higher harmonics that we can have as well. I didn't quite draw that one, the scale. Here's the second harmonic. And it has an anti-node one-third of the way over at x equals 33 centimeters. That was the correct answer. Now I can make arguments why it's impossible to have an anti-node at 0, 50, or 67. Um, but you can see clearly that there definitely can be one at 33. So I'll leave it at that. Um, Question number six. Yeah. 
No, I said, where can there be an antinode? And clearly there can be an antinode at this point if it's the second harmonic. It doesn't mean there will be an antinode there. But there are some points, like here, where there cannot be an antinode because there has to be a node because it's fixed. Okay. Likewise, I can argue that there has to be a node, or that there cannot be an antinode at 50 or 67. Okay, but for now, I'll just, I've showed that there can be one at 33, so I'll leave it at that. Question six about uh, the functional form for a wave on a string. Part A and B, options A and B, are not dimensionally consistent. We have a, if you just look at this term inside of parentheses, um, V times Z, this is a length per unit time, that's a, uh, a velocity, and this is a, a length or a distance. So the units on this are distance squared over time. The dimensions of that are distance squared over time. The dimensions of this are time. These two terms are not dimensionally consistent. We can't subtract two quantities that have different dimensions. Okay. So choice A or B physically are meaningless. So that leaves us with choice C or D. And the difference between them is the sign. That affects whether the wave is going to the right or to the left, whether it's positive or negative. We're told we want a wave going in the positive Z direction. So choice C says if the time increases, the position has to increase as well for this argument to stay the same. That is to say, if we follow a point on the wave, it will move to the right. If the wave is described by choice C, it will move to the left if it's described by choice C. Okay, so choice C was the right answer there. Number seven, if we increase the volume on our stereo by 13 dB, how much does the sound change? Um, increasing by 13 dB on a logarithmic scale, which is the, the scale that loudness is measured in, so dB is a, is a logarithmic unit, means that the intensity increases by 10 to the 13 over 10 or 10 to the 1.3, which is a factor of 20. So the first thing you had to realize is that this dB is not measured, it's not a direct measure of intensity, so it's not 13 watts per centimeter squared. It's not a factor increase, so it's not 13 times. And then if you work out using the relationship between sound level and intensity, you could solve for 20x. Question eight, a bagpipe player has a pipe that's 30 centimeters long, open at one end, closed at the other. So it's like this string, and then it will have an anti-node on one side and a node on the other. And we asked about the frequency of the fundamental. The fundamental standing wave is one that has a, a wave form that looks like this. This is one quarter of a wavelength going from zero to a max. Got to go back to zero, then to a min, and back to zero. And that would be one full wavelength of the sound. 
if you recognize that, you can see that the length is a quarter wavelength. Or the wavelength is 4L, or 1.2 meters. So if you're given the wavelength and the speed of sound, you can find the frequency. Frequency is the speed of sound divided by the wavelength. And you're given those, those values, or you're given the velocity of sound in the uh, problem. And you can solve for the wavelength and plug it in and get 287 hertz. And then in question nine, you're asked what you'd, how that sound would change if the bagpipe player is walking towards you. So when you have a problem that involves sound and motion, you should think Doppler shift. So here we have a Doppler shift. Because the sound is coming towards us, we'd expect the frequency to go up. So one of these two positive shifts. And if they're walking at one meter per second and the speed of sound is 344 meters per second, that fractional shift is about 0.3%. You can work that out using the Doppler formula that was given in the last problem. Um, but that simple argument shows you that it increases by about 0.3%. Any questions then on the multiple choice? Yeah, that's, what's your question? That's not a question. Well, A and B are dimensionally inconsistent, right? C is a wave that's moving in the positive Z direction. D is a wave moving in the negative Z direction. All right, uh, the first of the two work it out problems. This problem really had, there's three parts to the problem, but really there's two logical parts. Uh, the first two parts relate to the forces that act on this floating cup. And then the third part relates to the oscillatory motion that you'd have if it were left free to bob back and forth in the water. So in part A, we're asked how far below the water line this cup will, will sit when it's floating. Um, and what that means is to sit there when it's floating means it's in equilibrium. Equilibrium means the forces balance. And when you deal with forces, the basic problem solving strategy is always the same. Draw a free body diagram, add up the forces. The net force you set equal to the mass times acceleration. That's Newton's second law. And then you solve for whatever quantity you, you're interested in. So in this case, it's in equilibrium. So we know the net force has to equal zero. That net force comes from the sum of the forces on this. There's the weight pulling it down. And then because it's in the water, there's a buoyant force pushing it up. That allows it to float. So you have to recognize that the buoyant force is equal to rho Vg. And that the volume that's displaced is related to how far below the, the water it floats. Once you've done that, you can solve for x at 2.4 centimeters. Okay, So the way this was graded, uh, you got one point for recognizing that this was in equilibrium and writing this equilibrium constraint. Um, you got 
two points for correctly um, recognizing that the buoyant force is given by this expression here. On one point, if you identified this more generic term of the expression, one point for identifying the proper weight of the cup that opposed that buoyant force, one point for solving for x, and one point for getting the correct numerical answer with the appropriate unit. So pi d squared over 4 is the area of a circle of diameter d. In this case, it's the area of this cylinder. The area of that cylinder times its height, x, is the volume of the cylinder that's underwater. That's what gives us the volume that's displaced. Yes, I do. Um, if the floating cup is pushed down an additional centimeter, that's part B, what is the net force on it? So here we have the same, basically the same equation, not the same equation, but the net force is the left side of this equilibrium expression. Okay, so we just have to take the left side of the expression that we had up here and evaluate it not at x, but at whatever we got here, plus one centimeter. And that will give us our answer. Okay, so instead of saying it's 2.4 centimeters below the surface, we'll say it's 3.4. We'll plug that in. should get about half a newton pointing up. So three points for correctly writing the expression for the net force. Okay, that's the buoyant force pointing up, the weight pointing down. Uh, one point for um, one point for simplifying this into this form which you can then evaluate for two points to get the final answer. And then finally, part C. What will be the frequency of oscillation after it's released? Okay, so this is pushed down. It's not in equilibrium. Uh, or at least once we let go, it's not in equilibrium, so it's going to shoot back up, and that's going to cause it to sort of bounce back and forth. It's going to oscillate. So the key here is we know how, how much force it takes to push it down one centimeter. So we can treat it like a spring with a spring constant that's given by uh, the necessary force to push it one centimeter divided by one centimeter. Once we know that spring constant, um, omega is square root of k over m. The frequency that we're trying to find is omega over 2 pi. So we can evaluate all those things and get 3.2 hertz. Okay, so when you're doing problems with oscillation, the key is always to be able to find omega, because omega is related to forces and the motion. And in this problem, you got one point for recognizing that the frequency you wanted was omega over 2 pi, two points for figuring out what omega is, omega is square root of k over m, One, uh, two points for figuring out what k is, k is the 
effective spring constant for this uh, system, and then one point for evaluating and getting the final answer. Any questions on problem 10? Okay, then problem 11. Uh, this was definitely the one that people struggled with the most, uh, maybe because it's the last thing we covered or it's the fact that we only spent a single day talking about Doppler shifts. Um, I will say if you struggled on this, you probably want to brush up on the Doppler shift before the final exam. So I gave you the formula for the Doppler shift, but I didn't explicitly explain what any of these terms were. So really all the points that you got were for figuring out what the terms were. I didn't give any points for writing down formulas because I had already given you the necessary formula. Um, so it's just a matter of figuring out what's going on in the problem. We've got two police cars, call it car one and car two. And then we've got us, we're the listener over here. These things are moving faster than we are. We know that because they pass us. So they must be moving faster. We're told that we hear a frequency of 680 hertz. So the frequency that the listener hears is 680 hertz. In part A, we're told that once one of these police cars has passed us, so the situation looks like this, where car two is beyond us and car one is still approaching, we're right here in the middle. When one of the cars has passed us, we hear a beat frequency of two hertz. Okay, so a beat frequency means there's two different frequencies that differ by two hertz. Now, as cars, as a source of sound approaches us, we hear its Doppler frequency, its frequency get upshifted. As it's receding from us, it gets downshifted. So if car one is approaching us, we know that that one we hear at 680 hertz. That was given in the problem. So frequency one is 680 hertz. And while that was given in the problem, very few people actually identified that in part A as the frequency we'd hear from the car that's behind us. For car two, we know its frequency has to be less than that because it gets downshifted since it's receding from us. And it differs by two hertz. So frequency 2 must be frequency 1 minus 2 hertz, or 678. Okay, so you get one point for recognizing that uh, the approaching car is a frequency of 680 hertz. I considered that uh, the easy part of the problem, so I only awarded one point for that. Um, two points for recognizing that the other frequency that you hear is downshifted. One point for recognizing it's downshifted by 2 hertz. And then one more point for putting all that together and getting 678 hertz for the other car. Part B asks, 
what's the frequency that one of the policemen would hear in his own car? Okay, so if what we hear is the frequency of the listener, what we're after here is the frequency of the source. That's what the policeman would hear in his own car. Okay, so a couple ways to go about this. One is we can consider this situation over here where this car is behind us, this car is in front of us. They both are producing the same sound as heard by the policeman in the cars, but to us, one sounds like it's at 680 hertz and one sounds like it's at 678. So what we can do is we can take this equation. We can plug in 680 for the sound we hear when the policeman is approaching us. When the policeman is approaching us, it has a negative source velocity. And we can plug in 678 when the policeman is going away from us. That's a positive source velocity. And solve for both the frequency and the velocity. So you could do all that. Or I would also accept 679 based on the fact that it's halfway in between 680 and 678. And there's a lot of mathematical theory that goes into the justification of that argument involving things called first order Taylor expansions, which I'm not expecting you to know. But I would still give you full credit for just writing down it's halfway in between. Even though it's not very mathematically rigorous, it turns out to be accurate. Okay, so the, each siren is at 679 hertz. Part C, what speed are the police cars driving at? Well, here we know the speed they're driving at is V sub S, the speed of the source of the sound. We know the speed of the listener, it's 20 meters per second. We know the speed of sound is 340 meters per second. We know the frequency of the source is whatever we got in part B, whether you got that right or not, is irrelevant. Uh, that should be 679. The frequency we hear would be 680 if the car is approaching us. And if the car is approaching us, we need to recognize that our velocity is negative because we're moving away from the car. So if you do all those things, you can evaluate what the speed of the, the car is by solving that expression. So one point, just for recognizing that the V in this formula is 340, which was actually stated in the problem. But if you wrote down this formula and you started plugging in numbers, you should get one point for plugging in 340 for V, one point for plugging in minus 20 meters per second as the speed of the listener, and that's assuming that you're using the Doppler shift formula for the situation described initially where the cars are approaching you and you're moving away from them. Um, one point for recognizing that the source frequency is not 680 hertz. It's not what we hear, but rather whatever you got for part B. One point for recognizing that the frequency that we hear is 680 hertz. And a lot of people got those mixed up and said that the source frequency was 680. It's not, that's the, the frequency that we hear. So a point for that, um, and then a point for solving for the final velocity of 20.5 meters per second. Okay, and we can just check that is faster than we're driving, which is what we expected. They're driving faster than us, that's why they pass us. Part D, 
what would you hear if you're driving at the same speed but in the opposite direction? Well, all we have to do is take this expression here and change the sign for V sub L from it was minus 20 meters per second, we change it to plus, and we get 765 hertz if we're driving at the police cars. Uh, since we're driving at them, our relative separation is decreasing much more rapidly, therefore we get a much larger Doppler shift. So one point for recognizing that you needed to change the sign and make that plus 20 meters per second. Um, two points for using the proper speed of the police cars, which is what you got in part C. And then one point for recognizing that the frequency has to be upshifted. And one point for getting the final answer. Any questions on problem 11? Okay, then let's move on and do some review. Um, do you want me to work out a few problems in great detail or a lot of problems in little detail? How many people would rather see fewer problems in more detail? One, two, three. How many would rather see more problems in less detail? Okay, that seems to be the, the choice. So. Um, we started with vectors. Vectors was chapter one. Right? Vectors are quantities that have a magnitude and a direction. We represent them by arrows. Arrows are things that have a length and a direction. And we can relate the length of an arrow to the magnitude of its components along the x and y axis using the Pythagorean theorem. We can find the angle of that. We usually measure angles with respect to the positive x, x axis from trigonometry consider the x and y components, then the angle is the arctangent. And likewise, if we're given the components of a vector, we can find its magnitude using the Pythagorean theorem. Oh, I just said that. We can, we can find the components from trigonometry knowing the length and the angle um, using basic trigonometry. So let's do a problem. A Ferris wheel spins such that Carriages on the rim have a radial acceleration of 0.4 meters per second squared and a tangential acceleration of 0.3 meters per second squared. Find the magnitude of the total acceleration. Which direction does it act? Okay, so we'll draw a little picture of what's going on. It doesn't tell me where on the Ferris wheel the car is, so I'll just pick a point. The radial acceleration, radial means in the towards the center and if this thing is going around in a circle I know that acceleration needs to be inwards and that has a magnitude of 0.4 yep centripetal and radial both are the same tangential acceleration of 0.3 meters per second squared tangential is perpendicular to the radial direction So we can find the magnitude of the total acceleration. We have two components. The magnitude is what we get when we add up those components. So this is the total acceleration. And its magnitude we can find from the Pythagorean theorem. 
Right? So let's consider this triangle right here. I'll rewrite this vector over here. And apply the Pythagorean theorem. And when I evaluate that, I will get 0.5 meters per second squared. Okay, so that's how long this, this vector is. I'm also asked in which direction does it act? Okay, so I can draw a diagram for these vectors. I've already done that. So let me draw it down here where it's maybe more clear. I can pick an angle in this diagram, solve for that angle, and then I need a way to express what that numeric value means. In this case, it's going to mean an angle that's in the tangential direction relative to the radial direction. Okay. So I can say that um, tangent of that angle is opposite over adjacent. And so I can solve for theta. I think that's 27 degrees. Although I don't have it worked out. And it's not enough just to say 27 degrees. I have to somehow explain what that means. It said usually angles are measured with respect to the x-axis, but I haven't drawn an x-axis here. So I have to say that's 27 degrees from the radial direction. Towards the direction of the tangential acceleration. That was chapter one. Chapter two, we talked about different parameters in motion. Velocity, displacement, and acceleration were the three quantities we dealt with a lot. Uh, displacement, we represent by the vector x. It's the location of an object. Velocity is the time rate of change of displacement. And acceleration is the time rate of change of velocity, or the second derivative of displacement. So all these things are vectors. Right. The displacement is a position, so that's a position in two or three dimensional space. Velocity is the time rate of change of that, so it's also a vector. It has a magnitude and a direction. If you're asked for a velocity, you need to give the magnitude and the direction associated with it, and likewise for acceleration. That's important. Acceleration is important because it relates the forces that act on an object to how the object moves displacement. Okay, so Newton's second law said F equals ma, and we could use uh, free body diagrams to help us 
determine what the net force on an object is. And then we could set them equal to mass times acceleration. Oftentimes, we ended up solving for the acceleration and using these relationships to figure out how the object was moving. Okay, so when you have constant acceleration, there were some equations that come from those relationships. The equations, we call these either the projectile motion equations or the equations for constant acceleration. They relate velocity, time, and position when the acceleration is constant. So if you know two of these quantities, if you know how fast something is moving at, say, two different times, you can use this relationship to relate those initial and final velocities to the time that elapses between them. If you know two different velocities at two different positions in space for an object, you can relate those two velocities to how far the object moved. And likewise, you can use the bottom equation to relate changes in time to changes in position. Okay, so we use these for the projectile motion type of problem. So a simple example of that is what's the speed of a golf ball hit at 30 degrees if it travels 200 meters and we neglect any drag or air resistance? So we have a situation that we can diagram. It usually helps to draw a little picture. Here's what's going on. The ball's initially shot at 30 degrees with some unknown speed. And we know that it travels 200 meters, meaning its height, as it goes up, it returns to its starting height after some amount of time. Um, and at that, at that instant in time, it's 200 meters away. Okay, So projectile motion problems, we're going to use those projectile motion equations. And we're going to relate what's going on in the x direction and what's going on in the y direction. And the thing that relates those is time. So we usually set up an expression in one direction, solve for the time it takes that expression to be true, and then use that in the other direction. Um, here, we don't know the initial velocity. But whatever it is, it determines how long it's in the air, and it determines how far it goes. So we can write an expression for how long it's in the air and how far it goes. We can require that it go 200 meters and then solve for what the initial velocity must be. Okay, so in that y direction, we can say the height must return to 0, start at 0 and end at 0 after some time t. The initial velocity in the y direction This is theta, or 30 degrees. The y component of velocity is going to be v uh, sine of 30 degrees. The acceleration is going to be minus g. this, for example, to solve for how long the object is in the air if we knew the velocity. We don't know the velocity. If we knew the time, we could solve this for the velocity. Okay, So we have two things we don't know. We need a second equation. 
So we'll consider the same general expression in the x direction. Okay, because we know something about how far it goes, and we want to relate that to a time. Okay, so it goes 200 meters, starting from zero. Its initial velocity in the x direction, we can find from this diagram, it's v cosine of 30 degrees. The acceleration in the x direction is zero. Gravity points down. That's our y direction, not along x. Okay, so I've got two equations and two unknowns. I don't know v and I don't know t. But given that I've got two equations, I can solve them. Right, so I can, for example, solve this one for t, plug it into here, and solve this for v. So this tells me that t is equal to 200 meters over v cosine 30 degrees. And plug that in up here and solve the remaining expression for v. This V cancels that V. Sine 30 over cosine 30, I can write as tangent of 30 degrees. If I bring this term, well, I'll leave it where it is. I'll bring this term to the other side and make it positive. I have a value for G. And numerical values here I can take this v squared and put it over on this side if I want and then I can solve this for v which I'll leave as an exercise for you you can check That gives you 4.85 meters per second. And it's worked out in the notes, too, so you can reference that. Any questions, then? This is chapter 1, 2, and 3 that we've just covered. Okay, centripetal acceleration is a different class of motion. Um, we talked about projectile motion just now. That's when things have a constant acceleration. A lot of times, though, things aren't moving in 
parabolic trajectories, they're instead moving in circles. Lots of examples of this. And when something moves in a circle, we know that its radial acceleration has to be v squared over r. If you see on a test, an object moves in a circular path, write down v squared over r as your starting point. You know that's the acceleration that the object has. And that will likely be important in solving for the, any of the properties of motion or the forces that act on it that cause it to move in a circle. Okay, chapter four and five, we talked about Newton's laws. Newton's first law, an object that's moving will keep moving unless it's acted on by an outside force. We'll keep moving in the same direction at the same speed. And likewise, if it's not moving, it will remain at rest. So Newton's second law quantifies that a little bit. It says that the net force on an object equals mass times acceleration. So the first law basically says if the net force is zero, the acceleration is zero. We use the second law all the time. Okay? That is the one thing. If you only took one thing away from this class, um, you'd probably be taking the class again next semester. But um, I would hope that that would be this. And the net force is mass times acceleration. Whenever we have problems to deal with forces, we draw a free body diagram. We add up the forces in the x and y direction. That's what we call the net force. We set that equal to the mass times the acceleration in the x and y direction. And that gives us some equations that we can start from to try to solve for the things we want to know. Okay, so we use Newton's second law all the time. Newton's third law tells us that if we push on something, it pushes back. And if we push hard on it, it pushes back just as hard. In words, that's what it means. Mathematically, it just says the force of A on B is always equal and opposite the force of B on A. Okay, so that is often useful in understanding how forces between different objects interact. So let's do an example of that. Physics student stands in a hot air balloon. What are the forces on the student? What are the reaction forces? Meaning which of the forces obey Newton's third law? Um, so let's draw a picture of the hot air balloon. So what are some of the forces that act on the balloon, on the person? The weight. So let's say the weight of the person is called W, and that points down. What is, before we go any further, if the weight is pulling the person down, Newton's third law says the person must be pulling something up. It's not the normal force. It's not tension. There is a buoyant force, but that's not. What's pulling the person down? Gravity. What's causing the gravity? What object? The earth. The earth is pulling on the person. So Newton's third law says the person must be doing what to the earth? Pulling on the earth. Okay. Newton's third law relates the weight of the person to the force that the earth feels 
as it's attracted towards the person, right? The person is attracted towards the earth, therefore the earth is attracted towards the person, okay? There is a buoyant force on the hot air balloon, and that might be in the opposite direction and have equal magnitude as the weight of the person if this thing is in equilibrium. But that is not due to Newton's third law. Newton's third law says the person is pulled down by the earth, so the earth must be pulled up by the person. Uh, what about the normal force? So there's normal force pushing up on the person. The, normal, the basket pushes up on the person. What does the person do to the basket? Pushes down. Pushes down. There's a normal force on the basket caused by the person pushing on it. Those are a couple examples of pairs of forces that obey Newton's third law. Okay, so when we're dealing with forces, we start with free body diagrams. You should be expected, or I expect you to be able to draw free body diagrams, even for some wacky situations. So you should expect that you'll be tested on this. Let's consider a wacky situation, a balloon that is, you can think of this as like a balloon that goes up to the top of a, of a slanted ceiling and it hits the ceiling um, and it's sitting there against the ceiling. What are the forces that act on it? Let me make this a little easier and just consider like a helium balloon. Neglect all the stuff with the basket. What forces act on this balloon? The what? Okay, what do we call that force of the ceiling pushing on the balloon? Normal force. In which way does it act? Yeah. It's perpendicular to the surface, so it depends on the direction of the surface. In this case, it's a slanted surface, so it's a slanted normal force. What other forces act on the balloon? There's three more. Okay, so the balloon has some weight. There's friction. Which way is friction going to act? Yeah, opposite. So anytime there's a two surfaces in contact, there can be friction. And if you ask if there were no friction, what would happen? Uh, well, the balloon would want to slide up the, towards the top of the ceiling. It's a healing balloon or some sort of balloon that's floating up. So if it wants to slide up, but it's not, or even if it is, friction has to oppose that. It's gonna act along the surface. And that leaves one more force. Buoyancy, yeah, we need a buoyant force. Right now, all the forces are pointing down, basically. So there has to be something causing to go up. That's the buoyant force. Likewise, we encounter lots of things that are not bumping up, up against this plant, but are sitting on top of this plant. So you could have a similar diagram that looks like this. Um, work, so that was chapter four and five. Um, chapter six and seven involve work and energy. Okay, so work 
is what you have when a force acts over a distance. And so if the force and the displacement are in the same direction, like here, we say there's positive work done. That means energy is being added to the system. So the weightlifter is adding energy to the barbell by lifting it up. Holding the barbell, although it may be difficult, doesn't involve any work. No work in the physics sense. No energy is being added to the barbell. There may be a force applied to hold it up, but it's not moving. The displacement is zero. So from work is force dotted with displacement. You need a force and a displacement in order to have work. In here, rather than just drop the barbell and have it smash through the floor, the weightlifter is setting it down gently. So he's still applying an upwards force as he sets it down, but it moves down. So a force and a displacement in opposite directions give us a negative amount of work. That means energy is being removed from the system. He's lowering the object down slowly, removing the potential energy that it had without converting that to kinetic energy, which is what would happen if you just dropped it. You can understand work in energy conservation a little bit by considering this diagram. Um, there's sort of three different forms of energy that we deal with in Physics 50. There's potential energy over here, and there's kinetic energy over here. There's also heat. Heat is what you get when there's friction or any non-conservative forces that act. And that's this red area over here. And so if there's no, oh, those are the different types of energy. Work just moves energy around. So work can transfer potential energy to kinetic energy and back, or it can transfer kinetic energy to heat. If work transfers kinetic energy to heat, we call that a non-conservative force. It's non-conservative because there's no way to get this heat back into kinetic energy. It's a one-way energy drain. So if you consider just the kinetic and potential energies, these dotted lines, then any energy that sloshes back and forth between kinetic and potential, we say is conserved. It's, it's still part of the total energy of the system and can be transferred back and forth at will by the work done by conservative forces. So work is a changing of energy from one form to another. Conservative forces do work that converts between kinetic and potential. Non-conservative forces convert kinetic energy to potential energy. So with this diagram, we can write the conservation of energy equation. It says the initial potential and kinetic energy, total energy in this in this uh, dotted line, these are the things that we can actually measure. It's very difficult to measure the, the thermal energy of a system. So the energy that we can measure, plus any work that drains energy from the system, that's how much energy must be left at some final time. So the final potential plus final kinetic. Okay, so that's the conservation of energy equation. We've used this quite a lot, both in class and in lab. It's important that you not forget about this term, work due to non-conservative forces. If you have friction or drag of any sort, that's going to be a term here. It's always negative. Non-conservative forces always do negative work. They always take energy away. And so when we have this on the left side, it says your initial energy minus whatever is taken away by, by friction is what you're left with.
Okay, we have three problems. I think we have time to do one of them. Let me show them to you, and you can decide which one we'll do. Okay? Yeah. There's 16 multiple choice questions, three short answer questions. 16, one from each chapter. Here we have two cars colliding, and we want to figure out, um, after the collision, which direction they move. Here we have an elevator, and we want to figure out how fast it moves when we release it from rest. And here we have a collision. Two objects collide, they bounce off of each other, and we want to figure out which direction they move after the collision. So all three of these problems in some form or another will be on the final. We have time to go over one of them now. Who wants to go over the first one? Second one? Third one? I think second one, one out. So we'll do that. Um, I told you uh, very early on in the course that you would benefit greatly from understanding Atwood's machine. There's basically this problem, and there's many different incarnations of this problem that I can ask, and I've already asked uh, one or two versions of this on various exams. Um, basically, it's an elevator, or a mass. It's not free to fall. Rather, it's got a rope tied to it, and depending on the problem, there might be a block that it's dragging, or another block that it's lifting up. In this problem, there's another block that it's lifting up. So the buckets are massless. They're loaded with these various loads. Um, there are these pulleys that have some mass and some radius. And they're solid disks. The system has zero energy when the loaded bucket is at rest and is 10 meters off the ground, what is the, I'm sorry, when, the, when this bucket is at rest and on the ground, how much energy does it have when it's loaded and 10 meters up? Okay, so that's some sort of initial energy. Okay, so compared to when the bucket is at the ground, this bucket is higher up, this bucket over here is 10 meters lower. Okay, so if I call this point one and this point zero, the energy at point one is entirely potential energy. This bucket has some additional potential energy from being lifted up. And this one has lost some potential energy due to being lowered. Okay, so the potential energy looks like MGH. There's the, we call it the bucket and the counterweight. I'll call it the bucket plus the counterweight. Both have some potential energy. Um, the bucket has a mass of 400 kilograms. 
has been lifted up 10 meters. The counterweight has a mass of 300 kilograms, and it has been lowered 10 meters. Therefore, its potential energy has decreased relative to the starting point. So I have 10 times 9.8 meters per second squared. That's 98. times 400 minus 300. Kilogram meters per second, meters squared per second squared is a joule. So the system has 9,800 joules when it's lifted up 10 meters. What is the total kinetic energy of the entire system when the bucket is moving with a speed v? Okay, so if the bucket, let's say I release this, and this is going to fall down at a speed v. This bucket is falling. What else is moving if this bucket falls? The other side goes up. Okay, what else is moving? The pulleys move. And because they have mass, we can't neglect that. They rotate with the speed of v over r. Okay, so they both have the same radius, both going to rotate at the same rate. So there's four things in this problem that move together. So when I ask what the total kinetic energy of the system is, I need to include all four, all four effects. So something moving linearly has a kinetic energy of 1 half mv squared. So let's take 1 half the mass of the bucket times its velocity squared. And we have 1 half the mass of the counterweight. It's moving at the same speed as the bucket, right? because it's attached by a rope. If this is moving down, this is moving up, they're moving at the same rate. So that's just v. And then the pulleys. There's two of them, they're identical. So I'll just write twice the kinetic energy of one pulley. And the kinetic energy of a disk or any rotating object is 1 half i omega squared. Here I have to recognize that pulleys are shaped like a disk and that a disk has a moment of inertia of 1 half mr squared. So I can plug all this, I can plug this in for the inertia of the disk. I can plug this in for its angular velocity. One half times one half. R squareds cancel. One of these twos cancel one of the one halves. And I get a term here that looks like one half the mass of the pulley times V squared. That I add with the kinetic energy of the bucket and the kinetic energy of the counterweight. That's the total kinetic energy 
of the system when the bucket's moving at speed v. And I could plug in the specific masses that I'm given for the pulley, the, the bucket, and the counterweight. And then finally in part C, I say if the bucket's released from a height of 10 meters, how fast is it going when it crashes into the ground? Well, so we've already done all the work here. We've looked at how much energy it has when it's at 10 meters. If that all gets converted into kinetic energy, then we can set this energy equal to this expression and solve for the velocity. had a number, 9,800 joules for the total energy, I'm saying E1 equals kinetic energy uh, at point zero. And that kinetic energy at point zero, I'm going to factor out the one halves and the v's. So we have one half times some quantity times v squared. That quantity looks like the mass of the bucket, 400 kilograms, plus the mass of the counterweight, 300 kilograms, plus the mass of the pulley, 50. So that's a total of 750 kilograms. I don't have this worked out, so I don't know the number. Yes? If I can write this. Like that. There are. So there's a factor of two over here, but I've already canceled that. Okay, so a couple comments as you go through your final exam, and really as you go through um, the rest of your career, either in physics or in engineering or whatever you're studying, when you're working out the solutions to problems, um, it's very tempting to take the information you're given, plug numbers into your calculator, and write down values. If you get the wrong value, you're not going to get any partial credit if you don't show your work. Um, it's important to show your work as well if you have the right answer because it's useful for others to see what you've done. It's useful for yourself to see what you've done when you go back and look at stuff. And why that may not, while that may not seem that important now, when you're working as a professional, it's very important because people don't trust anybody. Everything you do is going to get reviewed and checked and confirmed, and you're going to confirm other people's work so if you haven't documented what you did, then it's useless. Someone has to redo it. Okay? On the exams, documenting what you do allows you to get some partial credit. So that if I can see what you were trying to do, I can give you partial credit for the steps you did along the way. It will also help you avoid mistakes. When you write things out, any numbers that you write down, 
need to have units. Otherwise, this doesn't represent anything physically. Okay, this is an energy. It has to have units of energy. If you wrote this, I could say, well, they're trying to use conservation of energy. If you don't include that joule, this is no longer conservation of energy. Well, that's also important because it allows you to see sometimes that there's discrepancies. If you're trying to add two quantities and their units don't match, that's a sign you've done something wrong and you can go back and try to fix it. If you haven't written the units down, you'll never get that. Okay, so that's the one thing that people could do that I think would most improve their scores. I mean, one little thing you could do. Um, so I would, I would do that. Um, also, writing down sort of your starting expressions. Writing them out allows you to make sure you've got all the different terms considered. If you later want to go back and check, you might realize, oh, I didn't consider the fact that this problem has pulleys in it that have mass. You might have neglected a term like that. It's easy to see if you've included that if you write out all the individual terms at some starting point and work from there. Okay, so um, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, hopefully, if you do that, if you uh, learn from the mistakes you made on the previous midterms, if you do the practice midterm, which I posted online, um, and if you either do the extra credit by putting together solutions for the, the uh, multiple choice in the midterms, or review the solutions that other people put together, hopefully that will help you on the final, and uh, hopefully that will improve your grade. And I won't be seeing you next year because you'll be in 51 or 52. And uh, that's all for me. So good luck on the final.